Uh, as Sam mentioned, I love playing sports, and one of the things I do during summer is I play in a co-ed soccer league in Abbotsford. There's a mixed league, five guys, five girls, and then goalkeeper can be whatever, and 11-11, full field soccer, and because we're playing together, I get to play on the same team as my wife. So it's a lot of fun, it's a family activity, but I am the captain, GM, coach, equipment manager, water boy, uh, gear guy, recruiting guy, like every role you can imagine. So part of playing is I'm responsible for like getting substitutions on and, and putting people together. And one of the challenges that I face is it is a perennial challenge to balance our rotations. So we have players that are really good offensively, players that are really good defensively, players that are really good with their smiles, uh, but not necessarily with their feet. And I'm trying to balance it all together to make us a fun and competitive team. And I have, I have a guy named Jesse who basically every time he plays, he scores at least two goals, three goals. Phenomenal offensive player, horrible defender. I have a guy named Joel who's a, a tremendous defensive player. Every single game, he stops at least one very clear goal scoring chance for the other team. Uh, but I've watched him hit the post probably 20 times this year. So I'm trying to balance it all. And my, my biggest concern, though, isn't actually the player skills, it's player attitudes. Like, the thing that is most toxic for a team is when you get someone in there that is selfish, that cares only about themselves, their own play, their own experience, and those people end up ruining the team. They ruin the game for everybody. This idea is as true in sports as it is in the rest of life. When you have leaders, when you have people that jump in and they care only about themselves, they can cause, they, they, they ruin the culture and they can cause tremendous difficulty for everyone. Paul is writing to the Galatian church to warn them that some of their leaders, some of the people in that church are selfish players. They have come in and they're ruining things. And Paul is warning this church. He uses part of his own story, part of his own experience to remind them that you want to follow the right leaders, right? That's my big idea for this morning. Follow the right leader. There are people that are in leadership. There are people that set the culture and we want to make sure we follow the right ones. So our first point this morning is become like Paul. Paul's going to challenge them. Be like me. Galatians 4, starting in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. We're jumping here in Galatians 4. I'll literary context first. Obviously, we've covered some really important theological concepts leading up to this. In chapter 2, Paul shared some of his own experience as an apostle, interacting with the other leaders, and then got to what is a really faithful summary of the gospel, that we are justified by faith in Jesus, Galatians 2.16. And then as he kept, kept going, chapter 3 talks about the, the contrast between the law and, and the gospel, or the law and faith. And then last week, you would have covered the sons, uh, sons and daughters who can approach God by the Spirit, that we're adopted into the family of God. So there's been really big, important theological ideas. But our passage this morning is autobiography. It's just Paul sharing his story. But it's sharing his story 
with a point. Paul wants to share his own experience because from that, he's going to jump into sharing the challenge that this church is facing. As I mentioned before, that there are people that are misleading this church. We were introduced to them all the way back in Galatians chapter 1, where we were told there are people who are teaching another gospel. And then in chapter 1 verse 9, he, he reminds us that these people are preaching a gospel contrary. They're, they're contrarian leaders. There are people who are opposing the message of Paul. And in chapter 3, he tells us that they're bewitching people. Right? They're, they're leading a movement away from, from the gospel. The, the focus, though, in this passage is on, on a single verb here in these, in these few verses. It, Paul tells them, be like me, become like me. We're four chapters into this book, and this is the very first time Paul gives a command. There have been other verbs, but this is the first one where Paul says, this is how you should live. Be like me. And there's two ways we can take this command. Uh, he could mean be like me in the general Christian sense. So like the New Testament is filled with that kind of language. Uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ would be an example of that from 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Paul will consistently tell people like you and me, Christian life means you follow God. It means you love God. It means you obey his commandments. So be like me in that way, the general Christian sense. Or he could mean it in a very specific way, something in this passage. He wants them to be like him in a specific way that he's describing. I think he means a very specific way because he says, become like me, verse 12, as I became like you. So Paul is commanding them, be like me in a very specific way. Paul wants to talk about his missionary posture, who he was is a model for how they should be. So I, I want to, before we jump into his missionary posture, I want to address the, the bodily ailment that he talks about. So verse 13, he says that there was a body, bodily ailment. Something was wrong with him as he was serving as a missionary, as he was ministering amongst the Galatian church. Uh, so there are, are three options that historians and theologians will give for what was wrong with Paul. I'll give them to you in order of least likely to most likely. First one is that Paul had malaria. So their world was different than our world. Uh, if you had a sickness, it, it took you a long time to get over it. So Paul, in the Galatian region, it was low. There was marshes. Marshes mean mosquitoes. Mosquitoes carry malaria. So Paul had malaria, and it was taking him a really long time to recover. A persistent cough, a persistent fever. He looked unwell. We've all seen people who get sick. We know what unwell people look like. So Paul... Was a, he was hard for them to, to be with because he was constantly sick as a result of this malaria. It's possible based on the geography of Galatia. St option two is that Paul had epilepsy. And this one's a little bit more deep in the bag. Uh, the language of the passage in the, in the original language makes this a possibility, a possibility, not a probability, but a possibility, where he tells them, you did not despise me. That's the word he uses. And the word despised, it literally means you did not spit me out. And in, in the ancient world, they believed that if someone had epilepsy, if they had seizures, it was caused by demonic activity. And the way that you could exercise that demon is you would spit at that person. And in the same way that you spat at them, you were saying, you know, God's cast out the spirit, spit them out. So that is also a possibility. Likely though, the most likely is that Paul had ophthalmia. He had, there was something wrong with his eyes. He couldn't see very good. And this one is, makes the most sense of the context because of the, the, the way he describes himself. 
And then something else he says at the end of the letter. So in this letter, he says, I I had a bodily ailment. And then he says, if possible, they were so enamored with him. They received him as an angel. They would have gouged out their own eyes, right? I kind of have seasonal allergies. So I'm kind of coughing a little bit. If you guys really love me, you would pull out your own vocal cords and and give them to me. That's the image he's given. It's a weird image. But Paul is saying, like, these people loved me so much, they would take out their own eyes. So something was wrong with his eyes, maybe. At the end of Galatians, he signs the letter. He says, see how large letters I'm writing with my own hand. And this is what I think makes it so likely. So I, I want you to imagine their world. Uh, they don't have lamps. You, you wake up when the sun comes up. You go to bed when the sun goes down. Uh, you don't have tablets or phones. You write in scrolls with a quill and ink. So if your vision is not good, you have a hard time reading past like 7 p.m. And if your vision is not good and you're reading from the same scroll that is 20 years old because everyone else has been using it, and it was written with ink and it's starting to fade, your ability to, to read, your ability to do ministry would be quite challenged. So Paul is ministering among this church with poor eyesight. It seems like that is, is the most likely. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh, something that, that afflicted him. And this is kind of a similar idea. It's not clear if this is the same thing or if it's a different thing, but the point of our passage is Paul ministered to them through personal pain. He was not there in perfect health. He was, he was on his grind. He was serving even through difficulty. But the point wasn't that he was serving through difficulty. The point is that he said, become like me as I have become like you. So there was something about the way he was serving that he's saying, this is something you ought to do. It's not just, it, we could say for sure, enduring and suffering. But more than that, it was his posture. Paul was the kind of guy who attempted to reach all people in accessible ways. Uh, the, the theological word is that Paul contextualized the gospel. Paul sought to reach people with different languages from different cultures by making the message accessible to them. The idea of contextualization is when you take an existing word, an existing practice, an existing idea, and you teach something new using the existing thing. I want to give you an example. Uh, when I was a young man, like 12, 13, uh, I, I grew up uh, in, in the U.S., and I had godparents who owned a boat, and they said, Freddie, would you like to go water skiing? I'd never been in my life, never even skied. I've, to this day, I have never skied. I had not done water sports, so I was, I was excited. Who wouldn't want to go? And they, they were very avid skiers. They would slalom, which is that, that one ski, and you spin really fast. Uh, and I was like, I cannot do that, but I'm willing to try on, on the two feet. So Jack, my father, or my godfather, threw me in the water, or gave me a life jacket, threw me in the water, and then said, okay, Freddie, you kind of lean back in your life jacket, and you know, cross your, cross your skis, that helps you stay balanced, right? You don't want to tip over, All right, and then you're hanging onto this rope. Freddie, when the boat starts, I want you to stand up, not too fast, but not too slow. Uh, imagine with me that you are standing up as if you just got done on the toilet. Uh, how many of you understand the image, Yes. Every one of us, well, I guess most of the, anyone over like three or four, uh, has used a potty, yes? So we understand when you're done your business, you're not lingering, right? You're standing up, but you don't want to get up too fast because you don't want to fall. So it is like a a good pace. Water skiing is the same way. If you get up too fast, uh, you will tip and your face will hit the water at whatever speed the boat is going. 
not fun. If you don't get up, you'll fall backwards and then you're faced with the water at whatever speed the boat is going. Uh, Jack contextualized his message. He was teaching me a brand new thing. I had never even been on a boat, but I'd, I'd used the potty before. So he says, it's the same thing. And it, I failed a few times, but I was able to get up. This idea is the way that Paul did ministry. Paul carried the gospel to people all over the Mediterranean world. People that spoke most of the same language. They spoke Greek, but they were in different cities, different regions, different cultural backgrounds. And Paul is bringing one message to them. There's a passage in the New Testament that shows us his, his heart in ministry of becoming like the people that he wanted to reach. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19. For though I am free from all, Paul has no obligation. He's just, he's this there. I am free from all. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of God, that I might win those outside of the law. Paul wants to win people, and he will become like them to win them. Till the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul is describing his ministry mode to these people, to the Galatian church. He's saying, I was with you. And become like me in the same way that I became like you. When you're with other people, when you're ministering to people, you, you need to become like them. You need to remove offenses. Use language that is accessible, understandable, as you communicate the message of Jesus to them. Paul did this. He didn't just talk about it. He didn't just do it with the Galatian church. He did it everywhere. There are stories in the, in the book of Acts that describe Paul's missionary journeys and show him doing this. There's two specific examples I'll share with you today. Uh, the first is Paul strongly believed, and as you've probably been reminded of from the book of Galatians, that circumcision was simply a practice. It did not save anyone. Faith in Christ is what saved people. And yet, when he was going to add Timothy to his mission team, and he was about to go continue to serve in synagogues, he had Timothy, who was a young man, 16, 17, 18, somewhere in there, circumcised. A very painful thing for a grown man. A painful thing for anyone, I guess, but particularly for a grown man. Paul made him do something he did not think would save him. Why? Because Paul was contextualizing. He wanted to make sure that when Timothy and Paul and Silas rolled into the next town and they start preaching, no one could say, I don't want to hear from you because you're, you're, you, know, you don't know God. You don't know the law. They would, he was like them. He was accessible. The same thing happened towards the end of his ministry. He goes to the Jerusalem. He knows he's going to run into trouble there. And he's been traveling for a long time. He goes, he purifies himself. He goes to the temple and offers sacrifice. And we know that Paul understood the temple was just a building. Like sacrifice had been offered by Christ on the cross. So Christians simply worship God through prayer, through song, through lives of obedience. And yet he still went to the temple and gave a, an offering for himself being cleansed. Why? Because he was about to preach to a bunch of Jewish people that would never listen to his message if they thought he was unclean. Paul became like the people he went to. Paul did this because Paul himself had experienced this. Paul was mimicking. 
Paul himself had experienced someone coming to him in the form of, of God coming to man to save us. See, Paul understood the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ saves sinners. He used this line in 1 Timothy 1. And as he's describing the gospel, he says, of whom I am the foremost. I'm the foremost sinner. I'm the worst sinner of all. And it's hyperbole. Paul probably, it, I don't know if Paul thought himself to be the worst sinner, but he's using this rhetorical device to say like, no, like the gospel is, is for everyone. And God is the kind of God who comes to sinners, even the chief kind. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, compelled by the love of God. So the gospel is the idea that there is one God, not many gods, not an impersonal force, but a one, one God, a knowable personal being who reaches out to people, who made people like you and me to love him, know him, obey him, and live with him forever. And though humanity has not done that, we do what we want. We've rejected God and his word, God and his ways. God reaches out and through the sacrifice of Jesus, reconciles people to himself and then invites all people everywhere, respond, accept my offer, accept this sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins and enter into a relationship with God. Live with me forever, both being indwelled by my spirit and then with me forever in new heavens and new earth. Paul had this message that he knew God had come to him. God had made himself known to people that would not know him any other way. And that dramatically impacted Paul. So that in his ministry, he became like the people he wanted to reach. So I have a, a few questions for you. If we want to become like Paul, because that's the command in the passage. The first way you can become like Paul is, have you responded to the gospel? The message that Paul preached, the message that we still preach today, that God offers forgiveness of sins so that you can be reconciled to him. Have you accepted that offer? And let's say you have. Many of you are probably Christians. You've been Christians for many, many years. If you have accepted that offer, then who are the people that you know that have not yet accepted the offer that need someone to contextualize the message in their life? That they need you to speak to them in a way that they understand, with images they know and cultural practices that they can access so that they can know the one message that is meant for all people, that God offers salvation to anyone who believes. If you are not a Christian, accept the offer. If you are a Christian, there is surely someone you know that must hear this message. So if we are to become like Paul, we need to go to these people and share the message in an understandable way. Paul is a good example. Paul's a faithful Christian leader, but there is someone who is a greater leader than Paul, Jesus. So we become like Paul, point one. We also become like Jesus, point two, or become like Christ. Galatians 4, starting in verse 16. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Paul shares his heart for this group of people. 
Uh, this passage begins with an important contrast. There's two groups of people being addressed, or two groups of people being described. I, Paul, Paul is speaking to them. He shared the truth with them. And this group that is called they, this, this group of people that we were introduced to way back in Galatians chapter one, uh, these contrarian preachers that are preaching a different gospel or the people who have bewitched the Galatian church. And there are some significant differences between these two groups of people. I want to compare their ministry and I want to compare their motivation. So their ministry is radically different. Paul's ministry, as I already described, is a ministry of contextualization. Paul went to people, regardless of who they were, and spoke to them in an accessible way. He carried the gospel to a bunch of different people, and he said, believe in the one true God. So Paul went to anybody. Paul shared the gospel, as he reminds us in verse 16, because he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's what he came to do. He wasn't here to share stories. He was here to tell them the truth. There is one God and you must be reconciled. So Paul's ministry was going to people, making himself known to them, being accessible to them and sharing the one true gospel. The false teacher's ministry is very different. Uh, they make much of you is the language of verse 17. The idea is simple. They're, they're flatterers. They flatter people. And flattery we understand to be a vile sin because flattery is a tool that we use to manipulate others to live and act and talk the way we want them to. I remember in high school, uh, I tricked my way into an honors chemistry class. I was a pretty good student, uh, but Freddie has a, a handful of limitations. I have weak ankles and I'm trash at math. Like I, I'm good at other things, but those two things, I will roll my ankle walking on a you know, crack in the sidewalk, and I'm just not good at math. I can't do it. And I signed up for chemistry thinking it was science, but if you've taken chemistry, you know that it, it is applied mathematics. It, it, is, it is not science, or it is science, but it's the math side of it. And because I was so bad at chemistry, I did not even bother with physics. Uh, but I was in this class, and a handful of the athletes had all gone into the same class, and we recognized our error pretty quick. And as we were in the class, we realized that the teacher, middle-aged lady, uh, she was very easy to manipulate if you kind of hit on her a little bit. I'm not recommending this. I'm saying this was what I did in my pagan days. Uh, so all of us, we would talk to her. We'd be like, hey, you know, you're looking really nice today. Like, hey, class was super fun. Like, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, but I have this game, like, tomorrow, and the homework is a little bit too much, right? So, like, is there any way you would, like, pare it down a little bit for the people? She's like, ah, you know what? Yeah, I'll cut it down. And, you know, you would get less homework. Are you like, hey, today's actually pizza day in the calf, and I, I was trying to get like four slices. So, uh, you know, you know, you're my favorite teacher. Like, is any way you want to let us out like two minutes early so we can get to the front of the line? She's like, ah, well, I'm not supposed to. I'm like, listen, we won't tell anyone it was you. We'll say we cut class. Like, you'll never get in trouble. Like, you, we know each other. Come on. And she's like, all right, you guys can go ahead. And we could totally get our way by by flattery. It was mean spirited, right? We were using her to get what we wanted. It's funny because it's high school. But when we're talking about the gospel, when we're talking about teachers in the church that flatter people, that like, oh, you're so smart, you know so much, like, come, come, believe the same things that I'm teaching. Oh, Paul, he's great. But like, let me tell you some stuff. Paul didn't understand you. Flattery is a tool of manipulation. And Paul is warning them. These people, they, this group of people is making much of you. They're flattering you. They're misleading you. Their other, the other thing that marked their ministry was that they shut people out. 
And this is what false teachers do. They, they get you to believe something, and then they attempt to remove anything that might convince you otherwise. Well, I experienced this in, in a few years ago. When I was in Bible college, I think I was a, a year three student, so I thought I knew everything. I obviously didn't, but I thought I did. And two Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door. And they, we started talking, and of course, I invited them in. I was like, God, you have prepared me for this moment. So I invited them in. We're talking. I was not very good at rhetoric, so we're talking for like two hours. No one's getting anywhere. I'm getting annoyed. They're getting annoyed. And as we're sharing verses, like, we are not agreeing on a single line of Scripture. Like, we consistently say, well, no, no, my version says, my version says, my version says. And then finally, the Spirit slapped me, woke me up, and said, why don't you ask them what verse, or like what Bible they're using? So I was like, uh, just out of curiosity, two hours in, right? Like n- most of us would ask five minutes in, but it took me a long time. Uh, I was like, what, what Bible are you using? And they're like, oh, we're using the, the, the New World Translation, right? The only good Bible. Everything else is corrupted. And I was like, well, I'm reading ESV and it seems fine to me. And as, as we continued talking, I realized, oh, th- they have one translation and they use one translation because they expect every single person to believe the exact same thing. They are a cult. And they want everyone to believe what they believe. And they're removing any source of knowledge that might challenge you otherwise. Paul is describing <clears throat> the false teachers. And he says, they flatter you so you like them. They flatter you to manipulate you. And then they're shutting you out. They're trying to remove you from the influence of any other teacher. So you believe only their message. Paul is warning the Galatians about a significant danger. Their ministry is totally different between Paul and these false teachers. But the biggest difference isn't their ministry. The biggest difference is their motivation. The false teachers have no good purpose. That's what verse 17 says. They flatter Right? They're shutting you out for no good purpose. They have no idea why they're doing it. They don't care about you. They care about self. They're selfish people that, that want to be praised. They're the, the humble brag type of person. And Paul looks at that and he says, like, that's not my motivation. What's Paul's motivation? He doesn't state it, but the way he talks, we can clearly infer that his motivation is love. Listen to the way Paul talks. He tells them, he calls them my little children in verse 19. For us, like we don't speak like that, so we don't really recognize the emotional appeal of this. But I want to read you another passage. 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 11, says this. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. Right, the image is, you know, we go and we want to hug our kid, a cousin, whatever, a little person. And sometimes they say, no, right? Give me a hug. No. Like, that's the image Paul is giving. He's saying, I'm here. My heart is wide open. But you're restricted in your affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your heart. I love you. Love me back. Paul describes his heart for the churches in this way. But in verse 19 and verse 20 of our passage, he uses an image that, that is, is very vivid, right? Paul says, I, he, he, he loves him, that my little children, I'm in the pain of childbirth, right? Very vivid image that everyone in his world would understand because every single person who has ever been born or who's, who was alive was born through childbirth, right? And this is a tremendous pain, Paul, I don't think, is talking just about the pain. He's talking about the tremendous emotional changes that take place at the birth of a child. 
I would self-identify as a bro dude. Uh, like I, I'm not tremendously empathetic. I like sports and I like the Bible. Uh, and when, when my wife and I first got pregnant, I did not really know what I would be like as a dad. I'd never grown up around kids. Uh, so I was just my younger brother and I. And when we, when the delivery came and Isaiah was about to be born, we didn't know the gender. And I had two jobs in that delivery room. Feed my wife ice chips every time she looked at me and tell her the gender of the baby. Uh, I did the ice chips just fine. But when the, the child was born, when Isaiah like, entered the world, uh, I started crying and I couldn't stop. And it, it, it wasn't like the, like, you know, couple tears, you know, allergies, whatever. <clears throat> I'm a man. Uh, it was the like hot mess, like, uh, and I, I, I couldn't stop. And I was like, it's, 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 and she was like, is the baby alive? Like it, she didn't know what was happening. And then I finally, the nurse holds her. She's like, it's a boy. I was like, it's a boy, it's a boy, it's a boy. I was a mess. I had these emotions that I'd never experienced. And I remember thinking, never again. And then we had a second child. And during the second delivery, I started crying before the baby was even born. In the delivery, I'm just bawling. And I'm like, what is, is wrong with me? What, what is happening to my heart? And as these two boys have grown up, I have experienced new emotions where I have never been more willing to sacrifice for other people. I love my wife, but it is a different thing when someone is truly dependent on you for life. And I have these new emotions. We feel this. If you're a parent, you understand this. You feel this for your kids. You would give up your life for them. What about someone else's kids? Probably not, right? We love our kids, but Paul takes this image and he says, Galatian church, this is how I feel about you. My little children, I'm in, I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is saying, I love you as if you were my own kid. You, you are my own kid in the faith. Martin Luther wrote a, a commentary on the book of Galatians, and he made the comment that these words breathe Paul's own tears. We see this heart of a man who so loved this church, and not just like the cheap emotion of, highs and lows, but an emotion that was invested in what they were becoming. He told them, become like me. But the only thing more important than becoming like Paul is becoming like Christ. And that's what he says. I'm laboring in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul's vision for this church was that they would be like Jesus. And he knew that for Christ's formation to happen in people, it always comes through other people. Let me read you 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. How does anyone believe the gospel? Well, someone goes and preaches to them. Okay, uh, how does someone go and preach? Well, someone goes and sends the message or someone supports the missionary as they go and send their message. The gospel always comes through people. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So we have a role. We plant, we water. People do stuff. Christians do the ministry. That's why Paul says, become like me. Contextualize. Reach the people. But God gives a growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives a growth. See, our, our passage challenges us in two significant ways. Become like Paul. There is a missionary way that we must all pursue. But even more than that, 
Become like Christ. The goal of Christian life isn't to be a missionary. The goal of Christian life is to become like Christ. And then everything else flows out of that. As Christ is formed in us, we become different people who do different things. I think a passage like this reminds us to get in the trenches of life in a way that we don't always do. I think there's a couple questions, or there's two ways we can take this. The first is I think a passage like today gives us a reminder and an opportunity for self-diagnostics. If Christian life is what Paul has described here, being like Jesus, becoming like Jesus, a perpetual process of transformation until you look less like yourself, you're not the best you, you're just more like Christ. If Christian life is that, then I think this passage challenges us to ask ourselves the question, how are you like Christ? How? And, and if, if that's not enough, I think that the follow-up question is, how much more are you like Christ today than you were last year or even last month? Christian life is this transformation. And I think so often we get stuck in the tyranny of the immediate and we're going to work and we have friends and we have activities that we do and we never really ask, am I like Jesus I call myself a Christian. Am I like him? Or we, we coast on past success. We say, look how much God did this year or five years ago or 10 years ago. God came through for me and I changed. But are you becoming like Christ? Self-diagnostics is, I think, a, an important application from this passage. But then secondly, I think there's also a ministry opportunity application to this passage where we see that Christian life is this becoming like Christ. And we see Paul teach both in this passage and elsewhere that that happens through relationship. That happens in you going to someone and you contextualizing for them to even become a Christian. And then once they become a Christian, uh, we labor. That's what Paul's saying. I'm in anguish. I am working. I'm planting. I'm sowing. I'm watering. So Christian life then is that Our lives, as we become like Jesus, that's the first thing, out of that flows ministry opportunity where our friends, our family, our coworkers become more like Jesus through our impact in their lives. So then I think self-diagnostics first, we look in the mirror first, but then after that, when you look at your family, your friends, your coworkers, are they more like Jesus? Can you say, no, they have changed this year. Last year, in the last five years, I don't think we ask this question that often. And I think it's a really important question because Christian life happens in the day-to-day. And then you wake up five years later and you realize, I'm the same person uh, because I never tried to be anything else. And this passage reminds us, Christian life is becoming like Jesus. And that happens through the people in our lives. So it if you're not even a Christian yet, this gives you a good picture of what Christian life is. It's not just some rules. It's total transformation. And if you are a Christian, this passage gives you a vision for what your life could be, both becoming like Jesus and in helping others become like him. Our passage challenges us in two big ways. Become like Paul and become like Christ. Right? Earlier I talked about my soccer team and and the goal I have of making a competitive team, like a fun and competitive team. The biggest obstacle to that is selfish people. And my biggest job 
isn't scoring goals or defending against them. My biggest job is setting the culture of that team so that selfish players become less selfish because I'm willing to take people even if if they're not where we want them to be. But my goal is to work in that team and set a culture that moves us in the right direction. Christian life, Christian leaders are attempting to do the same thing within the church. You at Crossridge will get that kind of leadership from Lee and the rest of the team as they attempt to help you be formed like Christ. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians 3 that we don't do the growth. or We grow, but we're not responsible for it. God gives the growth. But we are responsible for the labor, labor that brings that growth. So I want to challenge you today in the way the passage does. Follow the right leader. And in following the right leader... Christ will be formed in you. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll invite the music team up to lead in communion. Father God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this day, Lord, uh, and the opportunity we have to, to spend time in your word and be reminded of what you have done. And more than that, Father, be challenged of what Christian life is. Father, I pray for everyone here uh, that they would have an accurate understanding that Christian life is becoming like you. And that they would jump into that with a renewed zeal. Uh, That they would seek that in their own life and also in the lives of those around them. Father, we have so much opportunity uh, in each of our own individual families and workplaces and friendships to reach people, to contextualize the message of Jesus. Uh, But we need to step into that. We need to sow. We need to water. We need to plant. So, Father, I pray that Crossridge would be the kind of church that sows and waters And we pray that you would send great growth, both in the people in this room and those they minister to. Father, we ask for transformation. We know it's only possible by the Spirit. So, Father, by your Spirit, make us new. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.